Good morning and welcome. Uh, Today is Palm Sunday and we want to begin by reading a passage that may not at first seem to be directly related to the Palm Sunday story, but in fact in a very amazing way is. It's part of the prophetic writings. It's found in Daniel chapter 9 and let me begin reading in verse 20 of that chapter. Daniel is speaking and he says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, that would be the Temple Mount, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel the man I had seen in an earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, and therefore consider the message and understand the vision. And now he begins to relate the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be built with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been declared. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out. Let's begin with a prayer. Father, I ask as we consider this passage, as as cryptic as it may sound to many of us who are unfamiliar with it, I pray that you would grant us the ability to, to see and to understand and to hear the power of your prophetic word, and it's important to our daily life. We ask you for this help, Lord, and trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, today is Palm Sunday, and as such, it's one of the most significant days in the Christian calendar. Uh, If you're not familiar with a lot of the Christian uh, liturgy, you may be wondering why that's the case. Well, primarily because it marks the beginning of what we call Passion Week. Passion Week is another way of speaking of Jesus' last week upon the earth before his crucifixion and resurrection. This is a central part of the whole gospel message. In fact, if you look at the four gospels together, over a third of what they recorded takes place during just this one small week or this one short week. That's pretty amazing. So that even in John's gospel, half of his gospel talks about the events that begin on Palm Sunday and end with Jesus' resurrection. This is the week that began with a very dramatic event in Jesus' public ministry. He enters the city in what became referred to as the triumphal entry. 
He is applauded by massive crowds who have come to the city in preparation for the Passover feast. And as he is riding in on a donkey, the people begin to declare him as being the Messiah, the king. In fact, they say things like, Hail, Hosanna, the son of David. The phrase son of David was pregnant with all kinds of meaning because what it implied was that he was the coming king who would set up the throne of David once again and rule over Jerusalem and Judea and usher in the beginning of the millennial kingdom spoken of so detailed in the book of Isaiah. They recognized that this moment was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah in the ninth chapter of that prophecy, something that he had said 500 years earlier. We find that Matthew actually quotes it in chapter 21, verse 5, by saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, which refers to the Jewish people, See, your king comes to you gentle, that means in loneliness and humility, riding on a donkey on the foal of a donkey. Literally, a foal or a colt of a donkey was untrained, unbroken, and had never been ridden by anyone. Instead of bucking Jesus off, he, even this donkey, submitted to his lordship and his rulership. This was such a profound moment because conquering kings always came in riding on white horses, but someone who comes in riding on an immature donkey, just a colt of a donkey, is coming with all humility. And so it was that Christ made his entrance. It's an interesting term because we call it his triumphal entry, although by the end of the week he's crucified. And yet it was the ushering in of the beginning of those last moments which would re- lead to ultimately the forgiveness of sin for mankind, his triumph over death, and in his resurrection. Yet despite all of this acclaim of the common people, <clears throat> this, there was a terrifying and threatening aspect to this to the religious leadership. These who held their position by the uh, will of the Roman government because they were complicit in helping them enforce Roman law. They saw that this acclamation of Jesus was a real threat to them. In fact, later on, they warned that the Romans are going to come in and, and drive them out. Days earlier, right previous to this event, Jesus had come to Jerusalem and raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And as a consequence, many of even the leaders amongst the Jews began to recognize that there was a power within him that was extra human, that he was very, in fact, the Messiah that they were looking for to come. And so it says in John eleven forty five 45, that even amongst these leaders, many of them put their faith in him. But after this, the, the, the rest of the authorities, the ones who were most powerful and most in control, decided that they had to do something. In fact, John goes on to record, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Caiaphas, who was the acting high priest at the time, responded by simply saying, it is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. And what we were saying essentially is, if we don't get rid of Jesus, this is what's going to happen. The people are going to rise up against the Romans. They will lose, and we will lose our place and our position. So thus began Jesus' final week of his earthly ministry. On Monday, following his triumphal entry, he drove the merchants and the money changers out of the temple. He also cursed the fig tree that withered, a symbol of Israel that was going to wither and die. 
And this really became something of, of a disruptive advent because the cleansing of the temple with driving out of the merchants in the temple disrupted really the cash flow, the key source of income that many of the temple leaders derived in order to maintain their position of leadership over the temple. They would pay every two years for the right to hold on to the seat of the high priest. And this was, of course, one of the main revenue sources that provided them the funds to do that. But over the next three days, at least, we know that Jesus taught daily in the temple. Uh, but, on one of the, but the tone of his teaching takes on a significant difference during this final week. He's more aggressive in calling out the uh, religious and corrupt leadership. For example, in Matthew 23, where he rebukes the Pharisaical party, he calls them hypocrites. He says they're blind guides, they're fools, they're whitewashed sepulchers, serpents, they're a brood of vipers, they're murderers and persecutors of the prophets. He said you are uh, outwardly appear righteous, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, unable to escape the judgment of hell. I mean, those were really, really harsh terms to men who were totally unaccustomed to being called out by anyone. And so they saw the situation was turning against them. And so we read in chapter 22 of Matthew that they began to lay plans to trap him in his words. And so much of the interaction that we read in Jesus' teaching and in these, this last week in the temple area were them trying to f- catch him in a trap so they could indict him and accuse him to Pontius Pilate. And yet, we have to obviously realize that we're talking about the wisdom of God enthroned in a human being. Those plans always failed. In fact, Luke tells us in Luke twenty twenty six that they were unable to trap him in what he said there in public. And they were astonished by his answers to the point where he says they became silent. They just gave up even trying to argue with him because he always put it back on them and made them look bad. He was very open in public about the exposure of their sin combined with the the miraculous raising of Lazarus and the eviction of those merchants from the temple entrance. Um, Basically, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, all committed to destroying him. They had determined he had to go. Of course, as we read the Gospels, we realize this isn't the first time they tried to kill Jesus or sought to destroy him, as it's often stated. In fact, we find there are like nine separate occasions in the Gospels where various individuals, or the leadership in particular, set out to end Jesus' life. Yet each time, they failed. And the answer they failed is given to us in John seven twenty, where he said, his hour had not yet come. That's an interesting phrase because John 12 times in his gospel talks about the time or the hour or the date of the events that are going on. In fact, basically Jesus referred to my time as a specific moment in God's purpose and plan for his life. You see, this 12th and final time he spoke about it, about his time, that is, it's at the close of the Last Supper when he finishes preparing his disciples for what the future holds. And it says in John 17, 1, in his high priestly prayer for the church, he said, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. 
So here again, let me set the context. 11 times previously, Jesus said, this is not the time. This is not the time. Even when people tried to kill him, he, we, he would, we would be given the commentary. They couldn't because it wasn't the time. So that we begin to realize that Jesus was following a calendar, a, a, a set of a series of events and a timing of events that was key to what his mission was all about. It's because immediately after this, John tells us in John 18, 1, that when Jesus had spoken these words, that is, in the upper room at the Last Supper, he went forth from his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, that's across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. And it's there as he is praying that the Father would prepare him for that which was to come. We find the chief priests and, and some of the temple guards come and arrest him and begin to head towards uh, Calvary and the end of his earthly life. What is often missed, though, as we read the gospel accounts is this issue of the timing, the right time, the exact hour in which things were supposed to take place. We recognize that the prophets foretold all sorts of uh, dimensions and dynamics of his ministry. We told what he would do and how he would do it, even where he would be born and, and things of that nature. But these prophecies were so irreversible that even when Jesus is descending down the Mount of Olives on that triumphal sundry, uh, and they objected to these cheering crowds proclaiming him the Messiah, they say to Jesus, tell them to keep quiet. Tell them to stop saying these things, particularly declaring that you're the Messiah. And his response is interesting. He says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Why was he saying that? In the point, well, the answer is that it was foreordained by God. It was prophesied. And when God foretells the future, it isn't because he just sees it, but rather because he is going to make it happen. He's going to bring it to pass. And so basically what Jesus was saying to him, this is so foreordained by God the Father that even if they refuse to obey the will of God or refuse to recognize me, even if no one were to proclaim me the Messiah, the stones would actually be forced to cry out because it had been foreordained by my Father. Why did he put it this way? Well, it's really probably because Jesus knew not only what awaited him in Jerusalem, but when it was going to happen. It's again like he is following a calendar or a timeline very carefully. And essentially, that's what we see going on here because Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem in, turn, in terms of his final fate. At least three separate occasions he had told his, the 12, he said, behold, we're going to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they scourge him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, you know, we're amazed because it goes on to say, but his disciples could not grasp what he was saying to them, so he repeated it over and over again. In fact, it's, the fact that it's recorded three times in the Gospels indicates to us that it was something that he said over and over again, and not simply just on those three occasions. 
Again, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies of Jesus as the coming Messiah. I mean, we're told that he would be a descendant of Abraham, that he was of the tribe of Judah, that he would be heir to the throne of King David, of direct lineage and descent of the kings of Israel, uh, that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem, that he would be born to a virgin, that he would be betrayed by his friends, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver that he'd be crucified between two criminals and buried in a rich man's tomb, that his hands and feet were going to be pierced, that the soldiers would gamble over his clothing, that not a bone of his body would be broken, that his side would be pierced, and that he would rise from the dead. Just to mention a few of the prophecies that the Old Testament has pertaining Jesus. You see, some people estimate there are as many as 300 separate Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus' life, ministry, death, and crucifixion. Mathematically, that's, has a, uh, there's such a high improbability that any one person could ever fulfill all those things that it would be impossible to have be something that just happened by happenstance or by coincidence. I mean, for one person to fulfill only eight of those prophecies, it's estimated that it would be one quintillion to one chances. One quintillion, you know how much 100 quintillion is? It's 100 with 17 zeros behind it. One chance out of one quintillion, 100 quintillion. I mean, I, I can barely say it, much less comprehend it. For a person to fulfill 48 of the prophecies, the odds are 1 to 10 to the 157th power. That means there's a link of zeros behind the 10 that go on and on and on and on, probably more than anybody could even write on a page of paper. But there was one prophecy that is so specific as to the timing of these events, it should remove all doubt that anyone has that Jesus was following a very carefully designed plan to the minutest detail with regards to his life, to his death, and to his resurrection. You see, again, nothing about his life was accidental. There were no mistakes or happenstance or coincidence. You know, it wasn't like Jesus came into the world and he got crucified and God said, well, now how am I going to redeem the world or make good of this? And he decided to raise him. The fact is, we find Peter telling us that all of this happened according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Jesus was not only, as John the Baptist proclaimed him, he said, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was, in fact, as Revelation 13 tells us, the Lamb that was slain from before the creation of the world. In other words, God didn't put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then Adam and Eve blew it, so he had to come up with plan B. Before Adam and Eve even had the opportunity to breathe their first breath, God the Father had already designed the plan for his son to come into the world to pay the price for the sin that he knew that Adam and Eve were going to commit at some point in time. It's really no wonder why David declared in Psalm 40 when he said, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you plan for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak of them all, they would be too many to declare. In other words, David's sitting back and recognizing, God, I can't even begin to fathom the breadth, the depth, the width, the height, the length the greatness and the grandeur of who you are and how you've ordained and orchestrated everything that takes place upon the world. Which brings us to the text that we read at the very beginning. 
Though it may not be immediately apparent or obvious to you if you're not familiar with the Old Testament prophecies, what Daniel did in that reading was foretell the very date that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem and be crucified and resurrected. Uh, Earlier in chapter 9, Daniel tells us that he had been fasting and praying with regard to the future of Jerusalem and of Judah. Uh, which at that point, the city still lay in ruins. The people had not yet returned from the captivity in Babylon. That is when Daniel tells us that Gabriel, the archangel, came to him and said, Daniel, I have now come to you to give you insight and understanding. Therefore, consider and understand the message of the vision. And what is the vision? Well, he said there are seven sevens, uh, 70 sevens ordained upon your people. Now, the word seven as it's used here um, is really a Hebrew idiom that is a common way of expressing seven seven things, seven days, seven months, seven years, so that when it says there's a week, it's referring to a week of years, so that the 70 sevens indicates that there are 490 years left for the history or the fulfillment of God's plan with the nation of Israel. So if we just kind of replay that in our mind a little bit, think about this. God, Daniel says, when will you restore Jerusalem and restore the temple? And God brings him a vision that takes him far past that question. He says there are 490 years that will finish the work that God said he was going to work through your people. Now, this vision of 70 years, or 77, excuse me, 490 years, is broken into three time periods. The first is seven sevens, which is 49 years. The second one is 62 sevens, which is 432 years. And the last seven is one seven, or seven years. If you add that up, it comes to 490 years. Its application is limited to the Jewish people. Because he said, these are 490 years that are decreed for your people and your holy city. So it has to do with the Jews. It has to do with Jerusalem. What is it that God accomplishes in those 490 years? Well, he lists six things that he said would take place. He said, number one, God would finish transgression. In other words, the sin wouldn't stop taking place upon the earth. He would, secondly, put an end to all sinning. Thirdly, he would atone for wickedness. In other words, there would be a payment that would cover the expense or the the debt of guilt of sin. Fourthly, he said he'll bring in everlasting righteousness. So there'll be a whole new order upon the earth. And he says also it will seal up vision and prophecies. There will be no more need for a prophet or a prophecy because everything will be in the eternal now. And finally, he says, to anoint the most holy. Speaking of the most holy, holy, or the anointed here, refers to the Messiah. He's talking about that when these 490 years are done, Christ will come and set up his millennial kingdom that he will reign over for a thousand years. The final uh, step that he, he says to us here, I've lost my place. Hope you could edit that out. <clears throat> but let's talk for a moment about the pattern of these 70 weeks or 490 years. As I said before, they're broken into three distinct time periods. 
The first seven weeks or four, 49 years begins, he tells us, with the issuing of the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. And he goes on to say that in those 49 years, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but it will be in times of trouble. Well, we know this is exactly what happened. There's a decree that is issued by the Persian emperor, and they rebuild the city by his permission, but they face all sorts of troubles. I mean, we read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, and even the book of Esther, we get an accounting of the persecution, the trouble, and the struggles they went through during these this 49 years or five decades that they were restoring the city of Jerusalem. The second period, he says, is 62 weeks or 434 years. And he says at the end of that 434 years, or if we were to add them together, the 49 and the 434, we would come up with 483 years from the time the decree is issued. He says the anointed one, or literally it could be translated, the Messiah will come. But then he says, interesting, but he will be cut off. Karat, the Hebrew word that's used there, literally means to die a violent death. And he says, and he will have nothing. The idea, not just that he will have no possessions, which Jesus did not, but he will have no descendants, no heir. There will no be no family lineage. So the Messiah comes, he is cut off, he is, dies a violent death, and he will no longer have a family lineage or line to follow after him, which of course fits Jesus perfectly as well. This, he said, after this happens, that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed a second time. So think about it from Daniel's perspective. He wanted to know when the temple is going to be rebuilt, and God says it's going to be rebuilt, but it's also going to be destroyed a second time in the future. He says, the people of the ruler, literally it's translated often the prince. And it's an interesting term because Titus was the prince or the son of Vespasian, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, that he was the one who led the attack and destroyed Jerusalem. And he says, he will come to destroy the city and the sanctuary, which has been rebuilt, Herod's temple. And the end, he said, will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been been decreed. So we find that the city is left in total rubble and desolation. All of this began to happen in 70 AD and was completed in the year 135 AD under Emperor Hadrian uh, following the Bar Kokhba rebellion in 133 AD. But that leaves us with a period of seven years. And basically he says, he, that is the one who destroys the city and the temple, which is apparently now rebuilt, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Now he says there's this final seven years of history and the same Antichrist personality that destroyed the temple will be re-inhabit a later individual who will do it again. And he says he'll confirm a covenant with many, with the Jewish people, for seven years. But in the middle of the seven, at the three and a half year period, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, some people have said, well, didn't that happen with Antiochus Epiphanes back in the, you know, earlier years in the, in the last part of the first century? And the answer is, uh, no, it didn't actually. <laughs> it, uh, in 166 BC, I'm sorry. It didn't happen then because Jesus spoke of it in 
uh, 30 AD saying it was something that was yet still to happen in the future. And so we understand that the abomination, this betrayal, was not something that happened immediately after the destruction of the temple, but it was something that would take place in the future. So we begin by asking the question, so what happens here? And what we have is basically a span of time that's not covered. And the reason is because it's the time of the Gentiles. Again, remember the context. Daniel wanted to know what is going to be the history of my people, the Jewish people. And so what we find is with the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jewish people are scattered. And Jesus said what happens from that point forward is called the times of the Gentile, the time in which God would be reaching out to the Gentile nations. Some people refer to it as the church age because God now begins to speak to the world and reach out to the world, not through his people Israel, but through Israel his church. And so we have what we call this interregnum, a period between the 483 years and the final seven years of history. We have, I have a slide that kind of, you know, shows what it looks like, that basically we break this time up into this period, which we call the church age or the time of the Gentiles. But then how does this line up with the history of the Jews? Well, the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem uh, we came uh, probably, we guess, around 457 B.C. It's a little hard to know because some scholars say there are three different uh, times in which Israel was given the permission to rebuild the temple. But the most likely one that he's referring to uh, is rebuilding of the city in 457. That's when we know that Ezra came back and later on Nehemiah built the wall around the city. So there's the estimates someplace between 444 to 445 and 457 B.C. But what we know is the temple would be already rebuilt, but the city was still lying in ruins. That total rebuilding of the city, as I said before, took almost 50 years or 49 years to complete until it became essentially a whole functioning community once again. This was followed by a period of 434 years by using the Jewish and Babylonian calendar, which had a year, had uh, uh, years that lasted only 360 days because they used a solar calendar, uh, unlike our, excuse me, they used a lunar calendar, unlike our solar calendar, which has 365 days. We also add every four years an extra day in February for a leap year. They would every 13 years add an entire month to the calendar. So that basically when you try to calculate the time time from the giving of the decree until finally the Messiah would come is a little bit challenging and there's slight disagreement, but amazingly not much. What we do find is that if we go back and count the days involved of uh, 483, 360-day uh, uh, years, then it comes out to 173,880 days. And he said, when, that, when you come to the end of that, he said, the Messiah will appear. Well, what if we look at the year 457 BC and we count forward 173,880 days, where do we find it ends? And the year is April 6th, 30 AD. Most scholars agree that that was the year and the time in which Jesus was crucified because that was also the beginning of Passover in AD 30. 
For those who always want proof that the Bible is true, I, I know of no other proof that is probably more compelling than this particular one. It's easy to say there has never been anybody in human history who came even close to fulfilling this prophecy. And yet there is one who seems to fit the portrait perfectly. And even though it's so amazingly mathematically improbable that anyone could do it without having been planned by God beforehand. We not only hold that... Uh, we're not only told what will happen, but even the exact day he tells us it will happen. In fact, it was Paul who warned in Romans 1.20, he says, his eternal power and divine nature, nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, how can God say that men are without excuse in believing in Christ because he said, I gave you so much proof, even by naming the very day in which I would offer my son as a sacrifice for your sins. You know, Peter was right when he said, we should hold closely to the word of the prophets. He says, you will do well if you pay attention to it as to a light shining into a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart that the prophets are a light into the future. That when you don't know the Bible and you don't know biblical prophecy, the future seems dark and opaque and confusing. And you all equally begin to feel like the future is something that comes upon us and there's no way we can totally prepare for it. Well, one of the things we find is people always are trying to prepare for the future and how well have they done? I think about when we had the economy crash in 2007, 2008. None of those people who forecast financial things were accurate. You know, in fact, many people after the events write a book saying why you should watch out for the future, but they never tell us beforehand. And even in our current situation, the economy was just screaming and then all of a sudden events took place that nobody had foreseen and now everybody's blaming each other for not having seen them, which is kind of crazy because most of life happens when we're not expecting it to. We're busy doing something else when life simply overtakes us. And that's exactly what God says is that's the way your life is unless you begin to understand that the prophets have foretold what those events are going to be. Granted, we're told nobody knows the day and the hour when Jesus will come a second time. But he does tell us, I've told you I was coming the first time. I proved it beforehand. I came and fulfilled everything that was spoken of me. And so when I tell you I'm coming back in the future, you should take that seriously because it will overtake you if you're not looking for it when it comes. He tells us most importantly that there are seven-year period which still awaits to be fulfilled. That period that John speaks of in Revelation, the tribulation. And it's important for us to live in that kind of expectancy, as I talked about last week, living lives that are rapture ready. Because we don't know the day or the hour which, in which Christ will catch away his church to be with him for all time and eternity. God bless you and let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to understand these things and to organize them in our minds with a, enough clarity that we can trust in the accuracy and dependability of your word. 
that your word is true as you spoke through the Isaiah the prophet and said, things do not come to pass because I have foretold them. I foretold them because I will bring them to pass. Help us to understand that and trust when we read your word that you know what the future holds. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.